Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of the podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Cam Gray, an associate professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a social historian with a particular interest in the late and post-Roman world. His research interests lie in Roman social, economic, legal, and agrarian history in the late antique period, the social dynamics of natural disasters, and the legacy of ancient Rome in American cultural, political, and intellectual discourses. We had an overwhelmingly positive and very timely conversation that touched on many difficult but critical topics that are important to discuss with respect to the current cultural and political climate in the U.S. We delved deep into the urban-rural divide present both now and in ancient times, discussed whether classics can be enjoyed by people across the ideological spectrum, and about the unique position the sciences occupy as a vital part of earning a liberal arts education. Additionally, I loved speaking with Dr. Gray for a multitude of reasons, but primarily because he offers such a unique perspective as a scholar of the ancient world, a social historian, and as a foreigner in the U.S., I really hope you will enjoy this episode as much as I had recording it. And without further ado, I'll speak to you all next time. So I want to just start out by thanking you for joining me on this fine day um, and introduce yourself. Like, who are you and how did you get into classics? Because that's the question of the century, isn't it? How does anyone get into classics? Right. Um, well, Thank you for the invitation, Lexi. It's a it's a real pleasure to be um, to be able to chat with you, as you say, on this fine day. It's very cold here in Philadelphia. It's it's below thirty degrees, so um, yeah, everybody's rugging up, nice and warm. Um, I am currently uh, an associate professor in the Department of Classical Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I was a, a visiting professor at the University of Chicago prior to that, and I did a PhD at uh, the University of Cambridge. Um, but the story of how I got into classics and how I got to here is um, nowhere near as straightforward as sort of that simple narrative suggests. I went to a, uh, a private high school in New Zealand uh, for my secondary schooling, and so I, uh, I learned Latin as a, as a high school student. Uh, but all the indications were that I was, I was going to go into the law or I was going to do something sort of, you know, um, sensible and professional and, and responsible um, uh, as, a, as an adult. And then I um, spent a year overseas. I left high school and in the British um, Commonwealth world that um, I grew up in, um, a lot of students would finish high school and then take what's called a gap year. Um, uh, before they went to university. And so uh, off I went on my gap year. I went uh, and uh, lived in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere in Scotland and taught in a tiny little school in this tiny little town. And, you know, that could keep on going as a sort of a progressive expression of size. Nonetheless, I spent about two months traveling in Europe, in the Mediterranean uh, over that summer. And I um, went, among other places, to Troy, which was a... a, a completely unplanned 
Um, I, I literally decided at the last minute to get on the ferry to go um, over to, 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 uh, to Turkey. Uh, and having got there, sort of thought, well, what shall I do next? Um, and obviously what you do is you go to Troy. It turns out in one of those extraordinary and bizarre coincidences that you really can't predict, my current colleague here at Penn, uh, Brian Rose, was the director of the excavation uh, then when I was there in like whatever it was, 1990 or something. Obviously, I was just some schmuck teenager from the Southern Hemisphere. So it wasn't like I was meeting with the dude. Um, but I'm walking around this and I was like, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be an archaeologist. And I went back home and I called my mother and I said, I've decided what I want to do with the rest of my life. Oh, what's that love? She said, I said, I want to be an archaeologist. And there was dead silence on the end of the line. And eventually my mother said, oh, so anyway, um, you know, you, fa you fast forward however far you, you want to fast forward. And there's a whole series of accidents in my sort of story of getting, um, getting to, to where I got to um, and a whole lot of, of really dumb luck. And to be completely honest with you, it might not be something that you really want to hear, but to be completely honest with you, the reason that I fell into this is, uh, is not so much that I loved the classics, but that I loved the intellectual task of finding out stuff about stuff that it's hard to find out about and putting alongside that having the extraordinary good fortune of having really inspirational teachers at these crucial moments who happen to do this stuff and not something else medieval china or early modern latin america or whatever else it might have been means that in the aggregate I've ended up as a social historian of the late Roman world, right? Um, again, through a series of accidents, I'm also now also a social and environmental historian of the late Roman world. And I think it would be a lie if I told you that any of this was in any way, any part of the plan. I love that though. I love how it's very, very spontaneous. Um, I would say I'm just the opposite. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I had a very inspirational teacher. Uh, and so our history class, each time period of the ancient world we went through, she had some new fun um, sort of class activity that got us into it. So she was like, you know, you can bring in bed sheets, make them into togas, choose an ancient Greek name and your table will become your polis, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I had a similar thing. I came home. Uh, I told my mom, guess what I'm going to do, mom? And she says, what? I'm going to be an Egyptologist. And she, she has no idea what that is. She doesn't even know the word. She, she was like, there's a name for the study of Egypt? What? So luckily she was like, okay, that's fine. If you want to do that, I, I don't know how to help you, but go ahead. You can go find out if you want to. Uh, the reality was a lot harder. Uh, and I did not know classics was a discipline at all. Uh, when I got to high school, the very first year that I got in was the very first year that they had stopped their Latin program. So I couldn't even take Latin in high school. And I remember being very disappointed. So I said, okay, whatever, I'll just do something else. Uh, but I'd always loved stories and mythology and um, just ancient history. So long story short, I got to college. I started as an anthropologist um, and then I was like, I don't know if this is right, uh, but I'll go talk to the advisor. So I did. And uh, she's the one who pointed me in the right direction and said, no, you, you want the classics department. So I just I love hearing how different it is for everyone, because some people like me, they don't know it's a thing, whatever. They kind of put it out of their mind and then they uh, find it later. And then some people are very driven. I've definitely talked to people who said I knew exactly what I was going to do and I did it. So and it's. It's a funny thing to know that you love researching really old things or that you love dead people or, or some some draw to the ancient world. Uh, and then to be able to not have a way to, to sort of discover or find like your spot, especially here growing up in the States. It's, it's really it's really weird. It's just really weird. Um, I don't know if it was like similar growing up in New Zealand. Maybe more people talk about it. In, in my world and in, in the, again, in the, the schooling that I, that I grew up in, the classical world was something that was simply part of our education, right? And that's part of, you know, British education or British and Commonwealth educational systems, those kinds of things. Um, but to be honest, I would say that 
coming to America has been a real eye opener for me in terms of how a society claims a connection to the classical world. America's expression of its relationship to the classical world, America's expression of its relationship to Rome is something that is endlessly fascinating to me. Um, I remember the very first time, and this is going to sound like Edward Gibbon, right? Edward Gibbon sitting there, um, that, that wonderful moment in Edward Gibbon's um, Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, or actually in the letter that he writes, um, reflecting upon that, where he says it was, uh, how does it go? It was as I was sitting in the Capitol while the monks were singing the Vespers that I conceived of the notion to write a history of the decline and fall of, of Rome. Um, my story is, you know, I, I was visiting a friend in D.C. and I happened to be wandering around the Capitol, uh, you know, sort of down, down there uh, at the, um, the sort of the, the, uh, the, the centre of American government. And I looked around at me and I thought, wow, uh, this could be Rome. Uh, they're really pretty hot on on uh, their their neoclassical architecture, and you know, again, what did I know? I was some schmuck twenty year old. That was the moment for me where I was like, there is something very particular about how America responds to Rome, right? And so, you know, that was the that was the 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 germ of a whole bunch of thinkings and questions that have formed an increasing part of my scholarship. I mean, I'm you know, in my my first. Um, my first scholarly life, if you like, is is as a social historian of the late Roman world. Um, my first book was a book about um, how small communities worked in the late Roman world. Um, and I'm now writing a book about the experience of living with risk, the experience of living with uncertainty, how you manage the unknowableness of the world. And this is, again, in, in the late Roman world, but you can see how it's kind of responding to um, to sort of questions that we ask in the present. But another part of my scholarship um, and another part of my scholarly world is precisely this question about how America imagines its relationship to Rome. And it's super interesting. You know, in a city like Philadelphia, you look around and you've got, you know, Roman architecture and you've got Greek architecture and you begin to learn that there's actually a difference in what you're expressing. Are you expressing Republican ideals or democratic ideals? And um, that's all tied up with debates in the 19th century about what form the American Republic should take. And then, you know, you go to the, the, the Schuylkill River and you see that the waterworks are actually done in a neoclassical architecture as well. So that means that um, sort of ideals of a humanist past and realities of a industrialized present are being melded together in all these interesting ways. And you start thinking, wow, um, everything's a little bit more complicated than, than I thought it was. I think for me, this is one of the most endlessly fascinating things about being a classicist and perhaps especially being a foreigner and a classicist um, in the United States. Yeah, I mean, it really, it, it gives you, and I can only imagine like how cool that would be, but it gives you quite a perspective. I mean, not growing up here, not just sort of knowing and seeing and having it just inherently drummed into you. So that way you look at something and you say, and then to some people you say, oh, okay, cool. And to some people, it, they don't even notice it. Um, so that must be a really, really cool perspective. And I love how you brought it into some of your interests because that's where I was going to go next. It's perfect because I, I see, so you obviously like to study the political influences of Rome that they have that they've brought to us here uh, but I also saw a big part of your work is also on like natural disasters and um, the more sort of uh, rural agrarian communities and so we have such a divide here in this country between the big cities where people stay and then the the more agrarian cultures uh, have you also noticed some kind of I don't know similarities or differences between maybe the rural agrarian societies in ancient Rome versus the ones here? Because as you've said, you can walk around the big cities and you see the, the architecture, it's uh, all these influences. Um, but when we go out to the more rural communities, there isn't this grand architecture, usually, usually. Um, that's not to say there aren't any, but um, yeah, if, if any. I mean, I think, I think what's interesting about the ancient world in that regard is the world that the world that we can grasp the ancient world that we can grasp through texts is a world of what three percent of the population five percent of the population maybe right it's the it's basically the rich men who live in cities that's the world that we can grasp and countenance uh through the, through the text which is often the first entry point into our study of the ancient world that's not a very big proportion of the population right 
Um, and so we come up with all these trite, trite statistics like, you know, 85 to 95% of the population of the ancient world lived in the countryside. Well, that's wonderful, fantastic. What does that mean? Uh, well, it means that depending on how you imagine the way that societies work, you either are sort of constrained to think that the world of this 5% is the world and the only world that we should be imagining because that's the most important world. So you have a, a top-down view of, of the world and a top-down view of society. Or you say, gee, wow, that experience of that 5% of the population must be utterly foreign to the, to the vast proportion of the population of that world. So what would, what would their experience be like? Um, because in the aggregate, 95% of the population have an entirely different experience of the world to your Ciceros and your Senecas and your, um, your Livies and you know, all, all, these, uh, all these other folks who we can access or we say or feel like we can access their, um, their thought processes and their worldview. And because I've always been drawn to the, to the silences, I've always been drawn to the, uh, the places where we can't find, we can't see, we can't hear in quite the same ways, that's the stuff that's always grabbed me. It's the, it's, the, it's the finding the silences. Now, that means that uh, as much as anything, uh, a lot of my work is also archaeological. I co-directed an archaeological project for about eight years in, um, in central Italy, which was designed uh, to excavate the, um, the lives of peasants, of agriculturalists. But, you know, I'm, I'm especially interested thinking about antiquity, I suppose, in the project of giving voice to the voiceless. Now, as I sort of reflect on my own scholarly training, a lot of the scholars who trained me had themselves been trained in traditions of the, the British sort of socialist and Marxist scholarly traditions of the, the second half of the 20th century. I don't regard my own scholarship as Marxist, but it is, um, it is inflected by questions about power relationships and power dynamics and, um, and those kinds of things that inevitably come out of um, Marxist, Marxist problematics, right? Um, and that's kind of interesting. And also something that is, I think, a little bit, again, a little bit more controversial in America, given America's sort of political historical response um, to communism um, in, a, in a global context. So that's sort of another interesting tension point to being a foreigner here. In response to the question about modern America and the urban-rural divide in modern America, I think you're hitting on something really, really uh, important and really, really interesting. And it's, again, a divide that you could sort of play out if you wanted to uh, along lines of how people are responding to and receiving and engaging with the classical world. You know, there's ways in which the classical world can be embraced and used as, as a mechanism for expressing um, notions of white supremacy, notions of dominance of particular um, segments of the population over others. It was inflected heavily in debates over slavery um, and in claims to the rightness of slavery in the middle of the 19th century. Um, so there's ways in which the classical heritage is really problematic, potentially quite um, toxic in modern American discourse. On the other hand, there's also the strand of, of contemporary scholarship about the ancient world, um, which is really pushing back against all of these notions that the ancient world was unalloyedly uh, brilliant and grand and great and wonderful and magnificent. In fact, uh, this scholarship is starting to say, well, all those embraces of diverse and heterogeneous population that uh, we are collectively committed to in our modern world, all of those things were actually absent from the discourses of the people that we read in antiquity. And it's one of our responsibilities to, to sort of try and grasp it. And so, you know, my, my colleague, Emily Wilson, for example, um, who, you know, has recently published a, a, a translation um, of Homer, the first woman to do so. Um, and she has really, really consciously problematized a lot of the translational, translational politics of Homer, right? How you translate Homer. Um, she's questioned and challenged and pushed back against that. And, and the readings that she's provided are both, I think, explicitly feminist and also implicitly feminist in that they, in a certain sense, um, they remove the last two or 300 years of male-dominated readings um, of, of the ancient world. And so that's, I mean, that's, that's really interesting. And I think that, that that tension that we see, there's a different tension in antiquity, but the tension that we see again in modern America as to how you access the past, how you access sort of the imaginings of the past is one of those things that 
perhaps I'm able to in view with a little less emotional investment and a little more intellectual um, detachment through being a foreigner. But I still find it, you know, really necessary to struggle and to push and to be in that fight with my students to, to, to make them realize what's at stake in sort of making these pat assumptions that we claim the ancient world unproblematically as a, a forebear to America. That was so wonderful because it just sparked about 50,000 questions. So I wish I had, you know, an infinite amount of time to ask you. So I'll, I'll try to, to make it uh, brief, as brief as I can. It's, it's interesting then because what I notice as an American here, also as an American who I work in politics. So I see things firsthand. Uh, and then with my background in classics, I can kind of see, hey, this stuff, they're getting it. They're, they're looking at the ancient world in a certain way. I look at it maybe in a different way. And we do see, especially in the last few years, I have been saddened to see the misappropriation of so much of ancient culture. Um, we can find it on Pharos, that wonderful website that is dedicated to finding, spotting, cataloging, and writing about all the different instances yep. of mis misappropriation, um, especially from the classical world. You've mentioned now that we see a lot of this divide in how we receive information and how we interpret the ancient world. From my perspective here, I know it probably, it's got to happen more often, but why is it that some of us will sit here and see it's only the extreme far right, like ultra white supremacists that appropriate ancient Roman, especially Roman symbols. Oh my goodness. Uh, they, they wear the Roman Eagle shirts and they have SPQR tattooed on themselves and use a lot of other um, very, very strong imagery. This sort of gives us this notion then that it's kind of like a, a one-way argument. Mm. Um, and I've, I've had pushback in conversations with people. No, 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 no. Maybe maybe they do misappropriate things, but I promise you it's not just the super alt-right. It's not just the white supremacists. Um, as someone who kind of studies and looks at these trends and has dealt with this divide, would you say, why, I suppose, do we get this impression that it's only the far right that misappropriates? Have you seen instances of maybe more liberal, left-leaning groups, figures also misappropriate? As I was listening to you, I was really trying to come up with an, art, an articulation of an alternative presentation. It seems to me, in a certain sense, what you're getting at with that observation is something around the difference between a dogmatic positivistic embrace of the reception of the ancient world, self-reflective, subjective acknowledgement of the complexity. Uh, of the inheritance of the ancient world, right? And, you know, this is, I mean, you, you want to sort of talk about, you know, siloing of information and, um, and the ways in which put ourselves in, into echo chambers. Uh, there's a really good example of it, right? It's, it's, it's really easy on one side to say there are straight lines between the greatness of the Emperor Augustus and the, what we're trying to achieve in, in modern America. And it, it's how it should be. And it's really evident and and simple it's really simple right and then there's then there's uh, sort of the, the the intellectuals on the other side who are saying oh no it's always more complicated than that it's always more nuanced and it's always more subtle and we both think in more um, diffuse and squishy ways certainty doesn't like squishy ways certainty and um, a collective expression of of clear views doesn't like nuance doesn't like it's more complicated than that and it seems to me that the, it's 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 even more than what you were saying. It's not even simply that there's only one mechanism and only one dimension in which it's being claimed. It's um, as with so other many other elements of contemporary American public discourse, there are entirely different conversations being had, and those conversations are not even using the same vocabularies. And so it's not even clear to each other that they're talking about the same stuff. We've both of us obviously, you know, spent a fair bit of time on in discussions and on websites with fellow classicists who are trying to parse how, as classicists, we are implicated in in these in these discourses. And the short answer is, unfortunately, simultaneously, we are heavily, deeply, and fundamentally implicated by nature of being in this discipline, and we're completely excluded by nature of our commitment to reminding ourselves of our subjectivity. 
because it's not it's there's not a place for acknowledgement of subjectivity there's not a place for acknowledging acknowledgement of nuance in 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 those presentations and i don't know what the answer is um and i was thinking on this relatively recently with some with some colleagues here uh, about the fact that when we teach our introductory courses when we teach our introductory introductory you know whatever it is classical civ or greek and roman history there are more than two, but let's just say two, two really distinct populations that are, are, are sort of flocking to those courses. One is the, the the kids that are like, I've always loved the classical world and I want to do the classical world. Actually, there's three. There's the, I've always loved the classical world and I want to know more about the classical world. There's the, this is fulfilling a requirement for my degree. And um, so I'm just going to, I'm just going to, you know, tough it out and get through it. And I'll, I'll, I'll get the little, um, the little, you know, bullet on my, on my transcript. And then there's the ones that already know the answer. They already know that the ancient world is the origins of everything that is great about what they see in modern America. And all they want is to hear confirmation of that. And what's really challenging, I think, for us is to acknowledge that that population exists and try to figure out how to talk to them, try to figure out how to move the needle as educators, right? Because if all I'm doing is providing a shell for them to travel through and to get to the end of having confirmed their own assumptions, then I'm not teaching. I'm not being an educator. But that's the population that it's hardest to reach. And the population that say, I've always loved the ancient world. Well, they're ready to hear me say, all that stuff they thought, you know, well, it's a bit more complicated and let's think about it in these methodologically interesting ways. The population in the middle that are like, I'm just gonna tough my way through it. You know, there's a feeling, there's a reasonable portion of those kids that if you show them how um, intellectually useful the tools are you know they're, they're ready to buy in but this population that are like I already know the answers I know that the um, that the Romans are the the fount of civilization and everything that's great about Rome um, is a model for what could be great about modern America I mean come on think about think about gladiator you know think about the politics of gladiator think about that extraordinary scene Joaquin Phoenix is 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 coming into Rome and it's all it's all fascism I mean it, all of it is is fascist um, fascist Italy writ large you know with the doves and the and the austerity of the walls and all of that um, and of course now in in uh, in 2021 we're reading um, the complicity of the senators um, in in Commodus's reign in new and different ways uh, again but that film, that film is a great expression, I think, of the, the ways in which contemporary assumptions about how the world should be um, and how the American world should be are expressed in and of Rome and using Rome as a vehicle. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's always, it's, it's been, it's really interesting to me to, to read some of the stuff um, by the folks that were brought in as advisors uh, on that film, the classicists that were brought in as advisors who found it a really intellectually complicated process for them to realize that in fact you know historicity and historical reality were not actually part of that conversation you know it's 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 a very different conversation that's being had there so thinking about the movie gladiator which just so happens to be my favorite film of all time like actually um it's it really is interesting because i hadn't thought too deeply into that scene other than when I would watch it. Yeah, yeah, this is great. We all know Commodus is the villain. Psh, he didn't earn that beyond just the whatever the film creates and, and wants you to, to feel about it. We know that their propaganda, the Roman propaganda machine was extremely successful and extremely good at what it did uh, for the most part. Not everyone um, fell for it, but you don't get to be very successful unless you're really good at what you do. And I kind of notice that the original Roman propaganda does really well to traverse the centuries that it survives, um, because a lot of things that I will sort of see or hear, and whether people know what it means or not, uh, I hear and see a lot of things and, and assumptions coming from the Roman propaganda machine here. When I talk to people about, hey, what do you think about ancient Rome? Let's have a conversation about how our society, how our country got its start. And so it's really interesting to see that kind of carry over. But also just in, in terms of when we talk about the divide of the students, some who just want verbal affirmation of their already constructed worldview that isn't really likely to change. 
uh, versus those who are more likely to go into it with a more open mind and just say, okay, well, let me just le learn this, the good, the bad, and the everything in the middle. In terms of how it presents itself now, I would say a lot of what you just had to say really Ooh, it provokes so many questions, but I, I'll, I'll try to pair this one and, and uh, it's kind of two, but I'll put it together in, in one and, and see if we can figure our way through it. But I think what I see now is a lot of the folks who already know America's great, already think our civilization is the best. It's the new heir to Rome. Uh, those are the people who are likely to look at the intellectuals, quote unquote, those of us who are hey, I get the nuance and say, I'm threatened by you because you're here to deconstruct what I'm trying to see, what I'm trying to show everyone else is so great. So I, it, there's this inherent hostility to intellectual studying it to any to, to break it down in any sort of way, um, because that's threatening to them, their worldview. And it leads to them thinking that we are just the liberal elites who are trying to co-opt what they see as their background, their civilization, their perfect ideals. Uh, so what you see is a lot of people are now hostile toward the classics and say, oh, well, that's just a thing for liberals. But a lot of what I spend my time talking to people about is classics shouldn't be seen as just for elite liberal people. Classics should be for everyone. Some people don't agree with me. Um, but the way I see it is even if we're n we don't agree with some of these people uh, who want to come into the field and just sort of use their perch to spread what they see is, oh, we're the best, we're the best, we're the heirs to Rome, we're perfect. Uh, you can't say anything to besmirch our perfect image. Why is it important, though, to have those people welcomed in even if we if we don't agree with them obviously you, you want a, a broad diverse base of people who are studying this stuff but i understand that it, it would be it sometimes presents unique difficulties to the discipline as a whole if you're actively bringing in and recruiting people who obviously kind of look at the scholarship and from a completely different way where we are threats to them we are threats to their line of thought how do we deal with this? Because I always want to say, I don't care what your political leanings are. If you love classics, you should be able to come. You should be able to study this. But if we're not going to come and look at things from the same plane, because what you they see is hostile to their entire sense of being and worldview, I don't know. How, how does that not like hurt the field as a whole? Because um, that's a pretty deep schism I'm seeing. I have a colleague who I think is a really eloquent way of putting what the value of classics in a modern scholarly intellectual context is. Um, and it's actually, uh, it's, it's, it's really basic. Um, he, he, he basically says, look, he says, our job as, as scholars is uh, to construct arguments and to figure out how to make good arguments. And those arguments and the, that capacity to build arguments is something that we should be putting in all parts of our world, whether it's um, a lawyer in a courtroom, whether it's an engineer using intellectual tools of organization um, and analysis to build, to put together the plans for a bridge, whatever it might be, that the, the, the patterns of thinking that classics gives are transferable. And here's what's really great about practicing those patterns of thinking and argument in classics. Nobody dies if you get it wrong. Right. So his argument is um, arguing over why Caesar crossed the Rubicon is intrinsically a good thing in terms of the, the development of skills, because there is nothing tangibly at stake if you get it wrong, except that you need to go back and do it again. You haven't killed people because the bridge fell down. You haven't had an innocent person sent to prison because you weren't a good lawyer. Right. So it's an exercise in intellectually having a space to construct arguments and to construct skills and to create um, a critical outlook and a critical aspect upon the world. Now, I think that that's one element of a good argument about why classics is important, but it doesn't get at the question that you're asking, I think, which is about what is intrinsic to classics that makes it a, a useful to, to, to sort of debate. Um, so this gets me thinking about the founding fathers. And it gets me thinking about that very particular late 18th century intellectual world um, that created um, the moment where a bunch of mostly European trained men sat down in a room, not very far from where I'm sitting right now, 
and had an argument about what the perfect form of the state should look like and then actually tried to pull it off right and that you know again when i when i reflect on that and when i think about that argument and that set of processes and the construction of the constitution i get all goosebumpy it's totally awesome i mean the the naive optimism uh, and the hope and the kind of the, the the intentionality behind that project wow that's totally awesome now you know let's be honest those dudes were pretty conservative you know the 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 um the world that they created was a world where people like them were empowered now you know right now we could have a long argument or we could have a long disquisition over the constitution as a living document or a document that needs to be you know um restrained to its originalist reading and then we start talking about the supreme court and all that sort of stuff i'm not necessarily wanted to go down that path but what i am getting at here is that in that moment a, a bunch of folks who you know if you read the federalist papers didn't agree with each other on everything and had some fairly deep schisms in their in their attitudes to who should be included and how they should be included and all that sort of stuff they were able to transact that discourse using classics and using their classical training and to come up with a, a document that represented a compromise of those positions right and it's a compromise and you know this is of course separation of powers and all the rest of it and you know that's what the described constitution of rome was designed to do in polybius's presentation to create compromise and it's what the prescribed con constitution of the united states again is designed to do create compromise okay so far so good but you go through the next 100 years of american history you go through you know the early 19th century and into the presidency of andrew jackson and then um you know you hit the civil war and then the industrial revolution of the late 19th century and you see that increasingly that naive optimism of the description and then the prescription of a constitution as laid out by the founding fathers starts to get creaky and it starts to need to have some sort of some additional bits put into it because it becomes clear that some of the the characteristics that it regards as ineluctably true or as irreducibly true are not irreducibly true Right. And so that for me is a really interesting exercise in thinking about how our collective imagining and our collective construction of what the classical world not only was, but could continue to be in our modern discourse should, could, hopefully will remain in a state of flux, but still um, a useful state of flux and a place where um, a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of different positions um, you know, can productively argue with one another, whether that's because they have the same vocabulary or whether that's because they have a, a space where the arguing is somehow able to be more robust because there is marginally less invested in it um, in tang tangible ways. I'm really struck by the fact I was, uh, earlier today, I was reading some of the writings of uh, Geoffrey de Saint-Croix, um, a British scholar with a really interesting personal history, actually, but a British scholar of um, the second half of the 20th century, very self-consciously a Marxist scholar, someone who regarded, undeniably and uncategorically, regarded St. Peter, Plato, and the Apostle Paul as the three greatest enemies to freedom of humankind um, that the world has ever known. Now, de Saint-Croix was an interesting dude, but it's especially interesting that for him, the arguments were still present. The arguments with those three men were still presentist arguments. They were arguments that you still needed to transact in real time. And so for him as a historian, both the past is, is past and it's eternally present. Um, and I think that, you know, if I'm making my own stance on the constitution and I'm making my own stance on the founding fathers and their intentionality for the constitution, I'm saying that from their point of view, um, it's a, it's a living document that is continually needing to be reimagined in the context of the present. Um, and that's something that I find really fascinating that their choice was to transact that original document in terms that resonate for classicists, that resonate for people who are classically trained. Now, we currently live in a world where that classical training and that classical education that they had is no longer as central to the American educational tradition. It's there, 
it's still part of the American educational tra tradition. It's findable, as you know, you as you know, and as you discover. It's not the everything that everybody does. And that was, a, you know, there's a there's a historical trajectory of that over the course of the 19th century, which is all tied up, I think, with industrialization and with new mechanisms of education and and um, um, and production that mean that the patterns of thinking that the classical tradition gives you are kind of slightly at odds with um, with expressions of you know what is educationally worthy and useful. But to have this document and to have this discourse still in the first instance transacted in ways that um, inflect with classical and received classical patterns is kind of interesting to me. Um, and it's an opportunity to reinsert a recognisable dimension of humanism into a public discourse that is increasingly pragmatic and mechanistic and also and also tribalized. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Since this is just perfect, I ask a great question about classics and you are immediately able to connect it to the founding fathers. You're immediately able to trace back to everything here in America that is part of our history, part of our culture, ingrained in the fabric of our society at every single point. So when thinking about how classics just there's there's no there, there's not a great importance placed on teaching it in our education system really unless you have unless you go seek it out you I suppose you've already sort of made the argument but one thing that I that I always love asking is we're in this big defund the humanities movement right now and clearly that is so wrong because if you can just boom come up with all these connections of why this is important you connected it so wonderfully to everything we touch on in this country why why do we think that they're so hell-bent on not funding us properly i understand that it's trendy right now to send people into the stem fields and the all the other fields uh, that are traditionally popular law medicine not that those aren't important of course they're, they're very important but why is it that I can clearly see you find you have such a value on a classical education. Why is it that we suddenly don't care anymore, especially when the founding fathers themselves clearly were very educated about the classical world themselves? I mean, we're, we're victims of a set of artificially constructed institutional boundaries, aren't we? In many ways, the notion that the humanities are separable from the sciences and that the medical sciences and the social sciences and you know that we have separate disciplines um those are all convenient institutional fictions you know the pursuit of knowledge is a is a an ecumenical undertaking pursuit of knowledge isn't isn't um actually bounded by uh, by disciplinary boundaries i mean um and, and and i say that um not simply as a set of abstract hopeful expressions but I say that as something that I really deeply and fundamentally believe in my soul I did a degree in environmental studies I studied geology and and um and earth sciences seven years ago in 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 early middle age um because I needed to understand those things so that I could ask the questions and answer the questions that I wanted to answer because I didn't have the tools to do so I don't believe in disciplinary boundaries. I don't believe that there are distinctions that one can draw between the, the intellectual paradigms of one field and the intellectual paradigms of another field. I think there are intellectual practices in particular fields, but that our job as, as critical thinking human beings is to ask questions and then to figure out the ways how to answer them. And sometimes those ways are going to lean and inflect um, more um, in a scientific way and sometimes they're going to lean and inflect in a more humanistic way but to say that you have to choose between one and the other um, that seems at odds with um, with with everything that we believe about learning and about about knowledge I'm not answering your question specifically uh, because I think that the problem that you're identifying um, is less a disparaging of the humanities it's more a a council of desperation response to a set of exigencies, longer term exigencies, not simply the most short term exigencies that we might be thinking about right now, longer term exigencies um, that have to do with a whole set of quite deeply held and collectively embraced notions about our collective mortality and um, how as a society we function. 
Um, and, you know, to go back to our conversation about certainty and uncertainty, about, about um, the clarity of the claiming of the ancient world as against the acknowledgement that it's um, actually a lot more complicated than that. The squishiness of the humanities means that it doesn't provide easy, straightforward answers. Now, here's what's really interesting. Neither does the science. Neither do the sciences. My, my wife is a cancer biologist by training. Um, we, uh, we met while we were doing our doctoral degrees um, at Cambridge. And I vividly remember the day where towards the end of our doctoral dissertations, I was just finishing up writing mine and she had just finished all of her experiments. And she said, okay, she said, I've got my data. Now I need to make up my story about it. And I said, but you're a scientist. Your data is your data. And she said, yeah, but it's just data. I have to generate an interpretation of that data that is subjective. I have to make an argument. And I was like, oh, wait. So, you know, again, some schmuck 20-year-old, right? What do I know? Oh, gosh, I keep on, I keep on saying this. I'm saying this about myself. I'm not saying that every 20-year-old every is a schmuck. I'm saying that I was a schmuck when I was 20. Um, but, you know, me, I, I, that was a moment where, you know, um, my quotient of wisdom expanded exponentially because I, I suddenly realized that what I saw as a distinction between the humanities and the sciences was not a distinction. The sciences are not objective ways of finding the truths that are going to solve our human condition. The sciences are subjectively undertaken in, in much the same way that the humanities are. And the best pathways towards a more perfect human condition, the best pathways towards um, treating and, and dealing with the, the societal ills that we see around us is for those two things to be put together. It's for a, um, the humanistic sensibility and the scientific sensibility to be to be combined, whether that's conversationally, whether that's in the same individual, whether that's in dialogue. I mean, yes, I'm making an argument for interdisciplinarity and for multidisciplinarity, and that's an old argument that, you know, we're all making all the time. Um, but I really sincerely, I really sincerely mean it. I think that we do ourselves collectively a disservice if we retreat to disciplinary boundaries, feel like we have to fight our corner from our, the, the context of our disciplinary boundaries. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in putting a hand out and saying, let's, let's see if we can do this together. Um, but that, of course, is risky because it, uh, it involves vulnerability and it involves acknowledging that you don't have all the answers and it involves um, expressing, um, you know, need for, for, for something else to, 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 complete, to complete the picture. Um, and in a world where funds are short and um, resources are short and they're going to be apportioned on the basis of a, um, uh, of a set of criteria that are judging relative merit, expressing those kinds of things um, is not rhetorically very useful right not, yeah. not and, very successful and i know so many people who obviously take the their favorite argument is the well i'm never gonna get a job i'm never gonna be employed which is when i usually come up with my my own argument of okay well if you don't want to major in classics fine but i would recommend picking up the minor or maybe a double major if that's a possibility um because it never hurts to be well-rounded and actually i know somebody who double majored in classics and theater, um, which I think is fantastic because entertainment makes the world go round, unfortunately, other than money, of course. And um, I just said, well, you're going to be a fantastically well-rounded actor. I mean, you're, you're going to tell stories. Most stories are based off of very old stories coming from the ancient world. So uh, just to have that background, I said, that's going to serve you well. Uh, and she likes to write and, and other things. So I said, well, you could expand. You could be a screenwriter, write for a film, do something. You'd be historically correct and know how to properly do it then. Um, so there's so much actual utility beyond just what many people would think of as just, oh, okay, so I'll go and, and learn to be smart. Sure. I'm like, no, there, there, there's practical applicability to it, especially if you pair it with something else. Um, you just Look, have to what, do it. What we always say is, at least what I always say is, the objective of, 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 of an education, and you know, often I say of a liberal arts education, because I do believe in a liberal arts education, but a liberal arts education in my mind includes the sciences. Uh, and that's not meant to sound, you know, um, concessionary or argumentative or anything. Um, but, you know, the best liberal arts colleges, I think, or the best liberal arts educations, ultimately aimed at producing people who engage critically with the world around them, who ask good questions about the world that they live in um, and are interested in contributing some portion of themselves in a critically engaged way to making it 
a better world to live in. Again, to me, that of necessity involves not putting yourself into one little box and saying, I am a this, I am a that, I am the other thing. You know, I am a thinking human being. I'm a thinking human being. And I'm a thinking human being, not me. I'm not claiming that of myself. I'm claiming that in the abstract. Right? Someone claiming to be a thinking human being is claiming that on the basis of exposure to a whole bunch of different micro patterns of thinking, um, micro institutionalized paradigms of analysis and picking their way through those and figuring out which bits work for them in order to be the kind of thinking human being they want to be. You know, to, to, to me, there is, um, there is only the pursuit of knowledge uh, in that regard. Uh, the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of a, a better way of ga- engaging with the world is not, it's not passed by discipline. It's not passed by field. Um, it's passed by your own agency in determining what you want to know and how you want to go about doing it. And I think that, you know, the job of us as educators um, is to provide the opportunities and to provide the scaffolding and the architecture um, for, for, for people to do that in the, in the best way possible for themselves. Yeah, I couldn't put it better myself. Oh, goodness. I wish I could ask you 10,000 more questions. But uh, at the end of every podcast, I have each guest read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. Um, And so if you could read it for us, please. And then just give us your your initial thoughts on what is this poem? How does it make you feel? What does it evoke? It's got some very strong imagery in it. So. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra. And I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, I I love Shelley. So you know, this is this is a joy for for me to do. Uh, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. In essence, it's, you know, it's the fundamental impermanence of all of our greatest imaginings of our place in the world speaking you know very personally as um as a father and as a family man it it sort of reminds me of the scale at which we can best imagine putting ourselves forward into the world having some kind of a legacy um and it's not at the scale of ozymandias right it's at the scale of being the best human being we can be in the moment that we can be that human being 
and providing the opportunity for our children to be the best human beings that they can be in their worlds looking forward. And so, you know, reading something like this right now makes me think about making sure that I'm being a good dad to my kids and giving them both uh, the right kind of an example uh, and also the right kind of opportunity so that they can make their choices about how they're going to carry themselves forward. Yeah, I mean, it's such a lovely poem. It is uh, my favorite of all time. Also because of the fact that as someone who majored in classics and is working in politics, um, the way I always see it is uh, it's it's very much a, a commentary, a very strong commentary on the ephemeral nature of power uh, and human hubris as well. Uh, and so one question that I love asking every guest, just because I love to, uh, is if we're kind of going off that interpretation of it's very, it's very fleeting, you have to always remember to be in the moment because what you do won't necessarily last 3,000 years later. Can you think in this day and age, is there a modern Ozymandias? It could be a person, it could be a place, a thing. It's something that I've just come to sort of appreciate because it's it could be so many different things to so many different people. We don't often stop and pause and think about things like that uh, in our modern world. So... I really don't want to end on a pessimistic note because your your question sort of pushes me in a pessimistic direction. And I think if I were to end on a pessimistic note, I would say something like the post-World War II capitalist world system. You know, this sort of collective imagining that things are always going to get better and that we are going to uh, be increasingly connected in positive ways and that there's going to be free trade that is going to make our lives limitlessly enhanced uh, for the foreseeable future. You know, as I, I, I talk with my parents about this and, you know, they, of course, were uh, the first generation who grew to consciousness under that and then you know my generation is living through it and then future generations are looking at it and saying well maybe it's not quite as straightforward as that maybe maybe this isn't all you know completely incontrovertible and uncontroversial and 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 set in stone to go back to sort of an evocation of of Shelley's Ozymandias you've pushed me you've pushed me pessimistic there was there was so much optimism in our conversation but yeah that's that's probably if I if I'm being backed into a corner that's that's how I would respond oh dear uh I I'm sorry yeah I I get some really wild answers I get a lot of pessimistic ones I don't know if I've actually gotten too much of a very positive one. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a difficult question also just because of the nature of the poem and how the poem itself is right. talking about great sadness. So I don't know if there's a way to find a positive spin on a modern Ozymandias. Um, but I just, I, I do like to sort of end on that note where even if it's not the most positive thing, it, it still forces people to get thinking uh, about the larger implications, about what we're seeing, what we're doing in society, uh, how we end up. Um, an example that I, I heard that I often now use myself because I thought it was so fantastic uh, is that uh, a modern Ozymandias is a, an abandoned casino in uh, Atlantic City. We thought they right. would last forever and ever, yeah. and now it's just gone and sad. And um, Yeah. But uh, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been so thank fun you. and I wish we had more time. Yes, as always. Well, those are the best conversations, aren't they? Today's episode has proudly been sponsored by our friends over at SASA, the Save Ancient Studies Alliance. Are you interested in ancient civilizations? Want to learn more about the origins of Assassin's Creed? Obsessed with ancient Norse, Mesoamerican or Chinese mythology? then join SASA, Save Ancient Studies Alliance, to remind the world the importance of ancient studies through fun events like archaeo gaming and book clubs. SASA is always looking for volunteers. Don't be shy, reach out and tell us why you love ancient studies. Visit www.saveancientstudies.org to learn more. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart 
that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 